Well, it's good to be here. It's good to be in the house of God, as it were. It's good to be with God's people. Wonderful time in prayer together last week, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday fast, and to, to do things as a body. You know, it's something we just strive to see more and more in such a, you know, independent culture, the first world. It's not terribly collective in its thought process, even coming in. So it's just so nice to come together and pray and, and, and pray as a body and to see God move and trust God for each other's challenges and, and, and to celebrate the triumphs. Amen? Let's just pray before we get back into James here. Thank you, Father. Thank you for what you are doing. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for your provisions. Thank you for your protection. We just open our ears to hear. We ask that you'd speak to us today, Lord. We ask that you would guide us in the way of truth. Your word is truth. We, we want to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. So we just yield our hearts to you now to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week we started in the book of James, if you were here. Uh, he kind of, uh, I don't want to obviously go over what, what I spoke last week, but he, he kind of got right into it right away. It's sort of his personality and style. He is, he is of course, the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, he's a fairly intense and to-the-point kind of person, and we will continue that today. But he said something quite intriguing uh, in, the, in the first four verses, he, he, he said to us that we should really be happy when we experience trials. And everyone, of course, it was a resounding amen. I understand exactly what you're saying, James. But he was able to, to sort of highlight, and he will continue to highlight how to, as it were, use trials as a Christian. Anyone here in the room that's never had any trials in their life? Anyone? Bueller? No? Okay. You see, you got that. We're old. So he says, we all can experience trials. The world, in the world and in the, in the church, you're going to experience trials. Unless you have a fairly insular life that you never experience trials, and that can happen. Most of us, regardless of creed or where we're from or language we speak or the wealth that we have, will experience trials. Now, I have found that in counseling for the last 20, 25 years, trials are some of the things that stop people in their tracks, in their call of God on their life. It keeps them, as it were, dwarfed because they can't get by the trauma of trials. And so maybe the abuse or what have happened happened 20 years ago, but the effects are just as if it happened today because the individual is stunted. So how can we begin to look at trials differently? And we highlighted the fact that faith is a critical component to the Christian. Never take it lightly. And faith is not just a statement of doctrine. It's actually how you take the statement of doctrine and you live it out in your life. And this is what James is going to highlight throughout this book. In fact, he's talking to people that are under levels of persecution. So he has no time to mince words. He needs to get to the point. He needs to make it plain. And this is what he does in this book. And he's going to continue in this same stream of thought as we get into verse 5 onward today. In the midst of these trials and in these, the midst of the, the refining of our faith, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Interesting in the midst of trials and the contest with which he's speaking, that of all things we could ask for is wisdom. How about we petition God to get out of the trial? 
Can somebody get me out of the fire, please? Isn't that sort of the obvious one, James? No, no, he says, no, that's not what you do. You ask God for wisdom. What should I do, Lord? What's going on? Help me navigate. I have found as I am in in a trial myself with work, that often in trials, confusion sets in. Lord, help me, help me navigate. We see this with, with uh, this desire for wisdom that if you know this Solomon, King Solomon, when he was going to become king and he had no desire, he was intimidated by it. And he asked God, he says this to God, Therefore give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Lord, give me wisdom. There's voices everywhere. There's great suggestions by people that love you that are in complete opposite to each other. What do I do? So in the midst of the fire, stand and look up. In the midst of the trials that you're in, don't try and find the door so quickly. This is what James is saying. Consider it all joy. It's it's an incredible statement, but this guy knows what he's talking about, right? He's 20 years he's led the church in Jerusalem. He's going to be martyred. This guy knows suffering. You may want to listen to him of what it's like to stand and grow in Christ in the midst of opposition and to actually start to use the opposition almost as an advantage to your faith instead of constantly caving, huh, okay, wisdom, Lord. Instead of presuming that God will always do what he's always done, maybe he wants to do something different with you today. Maybe there's just something different. Maybe when you just always go right, he's actually you go left. But it's not within your framework to go left. You know, and I'm going right. No. God's saying, I want to talk to you. I want to do something with you. He knows the plans and purposes he has for you. But of course, James now follows up in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This is the picture that James gives us of one who doubts. They're at the, they're, look at the wave there, the wind. I was just actually on the, uh, the uh, Bay of Bellingham with my brother yesterday. And the waves just get tossed around by whatever the wind's doing. They're not grounded. And he's saying, so is someone who asks doubting. They're just sort of thrown around. They have no grounding. And he's saying, this is what it looks like to God, the doubtful mind, the double minded, which we will get into. And the metaphor of wind is not just used by James. Actually, Paul uses it here very well. And you can see a very similar sentiment in this scripture. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And you will see an undergirding of the, of the authors of the New Testament to calling God's people to maturity. Calling them to stand. And remember endurance in, in verse 2. Endurance means steadfastness. That these trials would produce a steadfastness, a strength. And you will see that often only in trials do you know what's really in you. You know when things are going really well and the doctrine's great, everyone says, praise the Lord, and we're all singing and Things are going, but what shows you when you're going through, going sideways in, in trials, you're like, this is what's in you, Nick. As it all begins to fall apart, well, what's in us? What's grounded? What's steadfast? What's gold within you, as Peter says, talking about faith being gold? 
And it's, it's just our need here to not be thrown around, but grounded. We must endure. We must grow in discipline. And for those of you who have been around, you understand this. And you get kind of weary of going around the mountain. Okay, here we go. And God's saying, okay, we're building faith here. It's the substance of things hoped for. If you can look into the spiritual realm, it's like a substance. It's not just a thought. There's a substance to faith. James continues, speaking of the doubting man or woman. Let that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all, the way, on all of his ways. Let, him, let that man receive, expect to receive nothing. I mean, James is very explicit here. I'm like, could you be a bit more pastoring, James? Could you somehow ease it a bit here? A little bit of sugar in the medicine, help the medicine go down, you know, type of thing. But he's very clear that unbelief, the individual, comes before God and extends it. He actually extends it here well beyond just asking for wisdom that they should expect to receive nothing. And we know in Hebrews 11, it says, he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We see this in in Jesus. There's so many passages of Scripture when you go through and you look through the Gospels. But here's one where Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one prophesied about, is in the midst of these people. And he could not do mighty mighty works there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Marveled, it says. James calls the individual who's, who's wavering, as it were, in unbelief, double-minded. It actually means diapsychosis, like two minds. Do you go left or do you go right? Now, I've heard that people use this expression. I don't know if you've used it yourself. I have. I believe I've used it when they say, um, I'm of two minds on that. You ever use that? I, actually, I think I have. And you can't commit to, you know, to either outcome. And now I've I've seen this in my own life. And even going through stuff I'm going through right now, it's interesting to examine myself. Now, I've I've realized I hung out a lot with myself. In fact, I've spent more time with myself than anyone else. And I've seen this about myself. And this has caused a lot of issues in my life. It's a very frustrating place to be. And as soon as I lose focus and begin to listen to the noise, and you'll see how... The devil often says, does God really say? And that's often the attack he will use. He used it on Adam and Eve. He used it on Jesus in Matthew 4. Did God really say? Questioning the word of God. And we see these, these things start to go through your head. All of these various scenarios as you, as you begin to stray without realizing it. Without taking thoughts captive. And now I've seen this. in, in uh, It can spread quickly. Double-mindedness. And it says that they're unstable in all of their ways. In other words, it's weird that their double-mindedness can lead to all aspects of life, if unchecked. It doesn't say you're just unstable in one part. There's an instability, and we know in our own lives when we lose that, that instability, there's not, nothing that anchors us. 
when the wind blows, we're just, oh, do you see what Trudeau's doing now? Oh, the economy, like, like you're just all over the map. Whatever's on CNN, whatever's on the news, whatever the, it's just, there's no grounding. And this is what he's talking about. The trials and the challenges we face to ground us. And it's real, it's in your face. No one is discounting the trials aren't real. It's not a lying demon. It's real. These are real trials, but they're meant to ground us and that we might be stable, have endurance. And we see this, that this, this unbelief can be a cancer to our souls not confronted. I've seen, I've seen double-mindedness in churches. And over the years, and it was just, it all started with, is the Word of God really inspired? And then over 10, 20 years, the double-minded, it starts to leak, it starts to slip until they're completely unstable. They've slid away. And we have to be very aware of these, these, these insipid thoughts and challenges to the Word of God. Hebrews says this about it. Brethren, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I can, I've seen that in my own life. When you become convict-proof. When you, you realize you think it's the grace of God, but it's actually a calloused heart. When you no longer feel the conviction. When you've taken the battery out of the smoke detector. Have you guys ever done that? We've had that in our house, a stupid smoke detector. I'm like, see, we've burnt something on the stove. I'm like, this thing, I'm just shutting this thing off. But we do that. We know God, I'm cool with it. Grace, you know, Jesus, the, the credit card of Jesus, what he's done, just racking it up. No understanding of what's going on. No, completely unstable, double-minded, all over the map. A bit of new age, a bit of Jesus, a bit of this, a bit of that. It's so much of the articulation of the first world church. Be careful. Know the plumb line, the word of God. Have that in your life, daily in the word. Yes, great sermons, but we've we got a lot of sermons. We've got a lot of knowledge. Let's get in the Word. Let's listen to what God is saying in the Word of God. You may not understand it all. It's okay. I don't understand it all either. But get in the Word. I'd like to highlight the, the New Living t- Translation of this same passage in James because he highlights something I think it's very interesting. When you, when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Interesting, eh? Divided loyalty. I think this gives a good insight into what James is getting at here. You can't play both sides. On both teams, loyalty is it comes... It's a mind and a heart thing, loyalty, right? It's not just a mind thing, it's a heart thing. Like people for the Canucks. Where's Mike? Like to me, it's like it's beyond logic. It's like this is emotional. It's just like the hockey team. Who cares? But it's the heart's engaged. Like the Lord says, you can't love money and God. You can't serve God and mammon. You got to make a choice. And faith grows, doesn't grow in double-mindedness. It doesn't. You could have whoever's your favorite preacher. Whoever is your most anointed, he could be depositing, she could be depositing anointed seed right now. But if the soil, remember it's the soil that's the issue, it's been into you, if it's double-minded, it won't grow. 
Single-mindedness is a critical environment for faith to grow. Make a choice. You've got to make a choice in your life. You've got to decide to follow Jesus. And all that that means. And until you decide that and you add mixture, you, you'll be frustrated. Why isn't this working? Because you've got two minds. I speak from complete experience. <laughs> Let's continue. Now, as I warned you about James, he will pop around like popcorn on topics. So, although this does actually continue in the related topic, it does now go in a different path. Verse 9, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has a sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Now, if you've got a cursory understanding of the New Testament and you've read uh, the Gospels or at least been to Sunday school, you will notice that the, the kingdom of God often has direct juxtapositions to the world on many topics. Who wants to be great in the kingdom? I do, I do. You've got to be a servant. Oh, okay. It is better to give than receive. It's better to give than receive. These are very foreign concepts to the world. They expected Jesus to come, you know, I mean, a lot of the, the faith, word of faith people would expect Jesus to come in a Cadillac and his Gucci and his Rolex. He had no place to lay his head. His head. He says, you want to follow me? I got no place to lay my head. It was kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom is in direct contrast to that of the world and the appetites of the flesh. And that's just a few. And you'll see that James is going to contrast rich and poor. And it's no different. Because it is obviously more desirable in our minds to have money than not have money. Hello? Hello? James, is t- he takes a very different position. He is stating that the one who is poor should glory in that position of poverty. And these guys were poor. Like in Canada, we don't have... We do have Poe. I grew up poor. I wasn't Poe. I do know people that were Poe. I grew up poor. So I know what it's like to collect pop bottles, mom collecting pop bottles, to get dinner and so on, okay? But we did have a roof over our head. But Paul is saying something, or James is saying something very similar to Paul, that Paul had to learn because Paul was rich in a religious sense. When Paul walked in, he was the man in a religious sense. But God showed him something, and he broke him. He says, he besought the Lord three times on something. Don't know what it was. And God said, no, I will not remove you out of this situation. And he learned something about this principle that in this weakness, God is made strong. He learned something over time. I'm sure it took a while, but in his dealings with God and walking out his life, he learned that It was in the weakness that God was made strong. It wasn't just a nice verse on his fridge, because he wrote it. He actually lived this. And then he begins, he says something crazy that 
You're like, okay, that sounds great. I can quote it. Therefore, I'd rather glory in my infirmities. In other words, the glory in the weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is a principle that is so critical to walking in faith. I have noticed if you're like me, we often like to position ourselves out of the place of faith. Okay, that's taken care of. Okay. Because faith takes effort. You show up every day. To walk in faith, you must be intentional, correct? It doesn't just happen. Oh, my faith is doing great. I think, yeah, I watered it last week. No, it's a daily, it's a daily uh, intention to come together. And he's saying the poor is, the, there's an advantage to being poor. Just as, a, like, my own position is amazing. I'm like, wow, okay, I do pray a lot more. <laughs> I'm definitely, definitely more engaged. You got my attention, Lord. I don't have a job. Okay, all right. Okay, I'm not watching YouTube in the morning. Nope. Mm-mm. When I go to bed, I'm not listening to you. I'm not, like, it's amazing. Let it refine you. Let it bring you closer. Because all that's junk anyway. But you don't realize it. There's a frolicking I've had in my own life. Ah, let's turn the heat up, Nick. It's for your good. It's for your good. And he encourages, he encouraged the wealthy to be humble and to remember who the source of their income will be. And it won't last. We see this in Isaiah 40 when it talks about the the grass withers, the flower fades, and just juxtaposing who God is to the nations. We've got to keep money in check. And there's a lot of discussion around money in the Bible. And you own it or does it own you? And it can, be, it can begin to define us and we start to migrate away from faith in God to faith in finances. It's very easy to do. I've done it. And I'm not above any of this personally. I'm my own Petri dish. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I, I know myself well enough. And there is this place where it's just, there's this, you have to be careful about goods. That's why it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Like you're like, what? Why? Why? Because everything in the bank account goes off that ledger into the kingdom. I thought you said only a tenth. Yeah, no, it's now actually all. That's what Jesus took. He took away all of that and he actually ramped it up. Everything he ramped up. That's why it's difficult, right? Because he wants all. All to Jesus, I surrender. All. And when you don't have much to give, it's, it's a lot easier than when you do. I'm just being honest with you. A couple of scriptures here, just again, highlighting, because in our culture, it, the pursuit of money is at the, 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 the height of everything that we see, or at least most things. This is Jesus, and he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Covetousness. This covetousness is as idolatry. Worshipping things. Instruct those who are rich to, in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God has no problem with you being wealthy. He made you wealthy. He has wealthy people. Praise God. We live in a wealthy community. Praise God for the wealth and so on that he gives. Just don't let it own you. And I believe you have to be very, you have to have very strong faith to have a lot of money, I'm sure. I've never experienced it. But, but to have a lot of money and not be owned by it, you have to be so strong. Strong in faith. 
For those who pursue riches above everything, riches will not help you on the day of judgment. Another translation is riches profit not on the day of judgment, but right living save you from death. Jesus says this, a familiar passage. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. What if he could use Jesus on your financial counselor? We're going to bring in Jesus here. Like, no, get out of the room. Now, get out. Why are you bringing Jesus every time? I can't close any sales. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will also be. And this is to highlight, to me, if I were to preach on giving, and I know I probably should at some point here this year, but on giving, but I always say this about giving, particularly like to the church or being, being generous, is when God got my heart, he got my wallet. And that's, that's essentially my, central to my doctrine and theology around giving. When you look at where you give, where your finance, where it's, your heart is entwined with it. If you looked at years ago, if you looked at my visa, you'd see I really loved Starbucks until it went over two bucks a cup. But it was like, that's, because that's where, that's where the money was going, that's where I, right? Who owns your heart will own your future. Like you said to Peter, do you love me, Peter? He didn't ask him for the statements of doctrine, which are important. He asked him, who do you love? That's what your future will do. Who do you love? That's why it's so important to not be unequally yoked, not to go on a tangent, but to make sure the person you're courting, I know it's an old word, people court anymore, loves the Lord. Because even the great, great men and women in the Bible were led astray by the people they married. Your heart is very important to God. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content in what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever abandon you. So this is the crux of what James is getting at. People who have very little finances live Hebrews 13.5 every day or every week. Lord, provide. Lord, how am I going to get it through? This is of great benefit, James is saying, because this is what is refining their faith, which has far more value than gold which we talked about last week. Just in conclusion, we've looked here so far in James at embracing the trial, or as I say, embracing the suck, especially when I'm running hills. Running hills, you know, you're like, oh, this is horrible, but I know if I can make it at the top, it'll be good. I'll grow. I remember once when I was running and I was out of shape, and it's just what God always speaks to me when I run. I've already spoken on that once. But I remember avoiding the hill, and the Lord said, you're going back. And I remember running the hill, and it was horrific. I died. But he said to me, this, could, this is very well your future, but I will never leave you, and you can do it in me. But it doesn't mean it doesn't suck sometimes. Often we think God's just, ooh, I'm in the will of God, flying in. Ooh, hey. And that's what we present so much. If anything goes wrong, you're not in the will of God. How many times are you rebuking the devil when it's God actually disciplining you? Can you imagine my kid every time I discipline Satan, get away! I'm like, it's, you. it's bizarre. You know, Paul, Paul adds to what James is saying here in James 1 in Romans chapter 5. He adds character 
and hope. Would you not say the church lacks a bit of character? Well, that comes what? Through endurance. Well, what endurance? Of faith and trials. Growing up. Growing up, amen? We need to in the middle. Okay, if you guys are in trials right now, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to get on your knees and ask God for wisdom. Don't worry if you double. Don't say double. No, just look to Jesus. This is the word of God. Lord, and he gives abundance. Lord, I need wisdom. I don't necessarily want to get out of this trial. Although if you want to ask my opinion, I do. But, but, but I, I want to be refined in it. I want to be more like Jesus. I want to be transformed into the image and likeness of Christ. And what did Jesus? Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. We see the poor. He's highlighted the poor. The poor people have an advantage. Why? Because of the trials. The primary objective of God in your life is to mature you. To show himself to you. To use you. To walk with you. Everyone in this room has got, has been made, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, are his workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works, right? That God foreordained before the foundation of the world. You say, Nick, I have no, you have no idea what my father did to me, my wife did to me, my husband did, does it, nothing, the, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. No one can get in the way but you. But the only way you're going to take those is by faith. Not just proper doctrine, which is critical. I cannot, ex- but I just know what it's like to have, I, I regurgitate all the right stuff. What's the problem? It's time to walk it out. And to not avoid the trials, not run from the trials. But in the midst of the trials, look up and say, okay, God, I'm your child. You will never leave me nor forsake me. I believe it. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. I believe it. All the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. I believe it. I'm seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus right now. I believe it. I've been born again of incorruptible seed. I believe it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I believe it. There's a simplicity to faith. If your Christian walk is algebra, you need to come back to God. Because it's not algebra. It's simple arithmetic. There's math in it. Simple math. It's not meant to be all of these weird things. It's do you believe. If you came to Jesus, he would say, by your faith it will be done to you. He said that multiple times. The woman was healed. He goes, by your faith you were healed. Faith is critical in our walk. Allow God to refine you in the suck of life. And you may not understand all things, but in that you ask for the wisdom of God to navigate it well so that you may grow and move on. And then you're even better able to be useful to king, to the master, for the people around you. To help them through the things that suck in their life. The things that are going sideways that we don't always understand. Make sense? Let's stand together, please. Father, we just bow before you. We come boldly today. We, just, we, we, we boast in Jesus Christ. We declare the sufficiency of his blood. We declare his death, burial, and resurrection. And that we are in you, Lord Jesus. And as that, we have rights to be called children of God. 
We believe that you are for us, Lord. And if you are for us, who can be against us? But I pray for maturity. I pray that we'd present all people complete, that there would be a completeness, that we would have faith lacking nothing, that we would come through these trials that would produce a steadfastness and endurance that would make us complete, that we would be men and women of God, that our allegiance would be clear, that our flag would be one flag over our life, that there would be clarity in our hearts and our minds, that the confusion of that double-mindedness brings be gone. We long to see you move in our communities, Lord. We long to see you move in our school systems. But it's God's work done God's way. By faith. So Lord, we just ask you to lead us. And those who are in deep trials right now, oh God, may they be comforted. May they stand. When all else, may they stand. Show each one, O Lord. Give us wisdom, O God. We ask for wisdom to navigate the waters we're in. Wisdom to read the map well. Wisdom wisdom to read the compass well, O God. That we would become mature Christians in this time. That we would know our God and walk with you. That we would be not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That we'd be single-minded people. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing. Just going to ask the guys to play the last song and just, as, just allow the Lord to move, just to minister. If he's ministering to you, just allow him to minister. Lord, have your way. <laughs>